Congregation, what we have learned thus far in the second division of the Heidelberg Catechism, which deals with our redemption, our deliverance, we've learned the need of a mediator, a mediator that meets precisely our need, a mediator between God and man, a mediator who is a perfectly righteous man, but also who is very God at the same time. And we saw how it was necessary that we have such a mediator who can truly represent us, and yet who is very God to give eternal value to what he would accomplish as mediator. And we saw that God has provided for us such a mediator, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, whose name is Emmanuel, very God and very man, in whom God and man can be reunited, in whom God and man can be reconciled again. Now we saw on Lord's Day 7 that in order to be the beneficiary of what that mediator has accomplished in the fullness of time, that we need to believe in that Christ, that it is by faith that we become partakers of all that Christ has accomplished. We looked at the definition of faith. We saw that faith consists really of three components— First of all, there is a, a hearty ascent, a hearty embrace of what the Bible reveals to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an, an inner amen to what God reveals of himself regarding Christ. So in other words, in order to believe, we need to know this Savior. We need to wholeheartedly embrace what is revealed about that Savior and we need to trust in this Savior. We need to come to this Savior. Then a question was asked, what is then necessary, question 22, for a Christian to believe? And the answer was, all things promised us in the gospel. All that the gospel unveils to us regarding the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what faith does. When we exercise faith, we embrace the totality of the witness of the Word of God regarding the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it added this phrase, which the articles of our Catholic or universal undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us, and then follow the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed that we have just read in your hearing. And that brings us to Lord's Day 8. Lord's Day 8. Please turn there with me. Lord's Day 8. And there we read in question 24, how are these articles divided? Answer, into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption. The third, of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Question 25. 
since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? And the answer is, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Of course, we saw as we read John 14 how Christ repeatedly, repeatedly was alluding to the reality of God's triune being. And so we're going to focus, therefore, tonight on the God of salvation, the God of salvation who is a triune God. And we will follow the structure of this uh, Lord's Day. First of all, we will speak about the work, the wondrous work of this triune God. And secondly, the wondrous being of this triune God. The wondrous work of this triune God, the wondrous being of a triune God. And so it should be very obvious to us that the structure of our Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian structure. The first article deals with God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Articles 2 through 7 deal with God the Son and His redeeming work. And then Articles 8 through 12, even though Article 8 only specifically mentions the Holy Spirit, but what follows, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of forgiveness, all of that, all belongs to the Holy Spirit. So we need to realize that this Apostles' Creed ultimately came in existence historically as a result of the baptismal formula that Christ gave to his church just before he ascended on high. In Matthew 28, when he commanded the disciples to go into the world and to baptize the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. As I've pointed out to you early, that's the very first time in Scripture that those three persons are mentioned together and in that particular sequence. And so in the early Christian church, it was that simple baptismal formula which was the confession of faith that was required for someone to be admitted to the church. So as, when as a result of the evangelistic ministry of the apostles, when Gentiles came to conversion, before they could be admitted to the church, before they could be baptized, they had to make that very simple confession. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, and I believe in God the Holy Spirit. But as church history progressed, very quickly it became necessary to enlarge upon this. Why? Because very quickly errors began to surface especially errors about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the heretic Arius, a very influential bishop who denied the Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the, the courageous work that Athanasius did to counter that error. What a price that man paid to defend the Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times in his life, 
He had to live in exile because of his unwavering defense of that doctrine. And of course, the Athanasian Creed, which we regularly read in your hearing, is an expression of that which he articulated. He himself is not the author of it, but the reason it is called the Athanasian Creed because it expresses precisely what he fought for his entire life. And that's why there are six articles that deal with God the Son and His redeeming work so that it would be clear to God's church and those who would join the church what it meant to say, I believe in God the Son. And then, of course, also the focus on the Holy Spirit and His work because it all belongs together. The church realized when you deny the Godhead of the Son, the entire Trinity is in jeopardy. And so gradually, slowly but surely, as the church wrestled with all of these controversies, slowly but surely, the doctrine of the Trinity began to emerge in all of its clarity as we have it today. But as you well know, if you've read carefully with me when we read the Athanasian Creed, that that creed makes no attempt to explain the Trinity to us. Because as we will see again tonight, the Trinity is a mystery. A mystery that is beyond our grasp. It does not mean that we cannot understand something about that Trinity. But the mystery of God's triune being that He is one divine being, and that there are three distinct persons that subsist in that one divine being is a mystery that we cannot grasp. And yet I hope to be able to explain to you tonight that what it reveals to us about God, what it reveals to us about God's character is enormously significant. That's why we'll see in the second question, I don't want to run ahead of myself here, but also the second question where the question is, well, why do you then speak, when speaking about God, why do you speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Again, that answer, as we will see, makes no attempt to ultimately explain that mystery. And yet, as well, I will make an attempt. There are certain indications in Scripture also what we read tonight, certain indications in Scripture that give us some insight into that amazing mystery. So let me begin by saying this, also for our boys and girls, triune God. But one thing we can understand about the Trinity, and that is the God who made you wants a relationship with you in His Son and wants to communicate with you by His Spirit. That's who God is, a God of infinite love. But what we see in the Catechism, and I think that's so wise, that it first explains to us the work of the Holy Spirit, or the work of the Trinity, that it first explains to us what it is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost do. 
especially in the context of our redemption. And so what they describe for us is called the economy of the Holy Trinity. What does that mean? So what is an economy? What is our local economy here in Kalamazoo? It means that we have a a functioning system, a functioning system where everyone has its own place and its own unique role and contributes to the functioning of a local economy. And so what this answer does, answer 24, it sets before us what the unique role is of each person of the Trinity in the execution of the great work of redemption. Because that's what we're talking about. We are in the second division of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let me begin to try and to unpack for you what is recorded here. The first is of God the Father and our creation. I want you to notice that that personal pronoun, our creation, our redemption, our sanctification. So again, it is very, very personal. And so the question here is also for us tonight, what does that doctrine mean to me? What does it mean that God is the Father, that God is the Son, and that God is the Holy Ghost? So let's focus on our creation. I really want to focus on our creation as human beings, not creation at large, but our creation, because that's really important. And so the question is, what is the great purpose of creation? What is the purpose for which we were created? And boys and girls, why do we need to understand that? Because we will never understand the purpose of redemption until we understand the purpose of creation. And so why? The question again is, why? Why did God the Father create this magnificent universe? And why did He create man specifically? Man as the crown jewel of His entire creative work. And I would remind you again of the profound words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 when he tells us that all things, the whole universe, all things were created by the Son and for the Son. And unless we grasp that, we will never grasp the purpose of God's creating work, but also the purpose of His redeeming work by the Son and for the Son. That means that every galaxy out there, every star, everything about this magnificent and vast universe was called into being by God the Father to reflect the glory of His only begotten Son. This is especially true for us as human beings. That's what makes us so very unique. That's what makes us different from angels. Angels, too, are remarkable creatures. But angels were not created in the image of God's Son. We were created, Adam was created in the image of God's Son. That's why the opening statement in the Bible about man 
repeats that fact three times, that we were created in God's image. And that's why there's no redemption for angels. Angels were not created in the image of God's Son. But we were created in Adam in the image of God's Son to reflect the glory of God's only begotten Son. And that's why God is eternally, that's why the Father has eternally been committed not only to create us, but He has eternally been committed to redeem fallen human beings, fallen creatures, and to restore them again to what He originally made us to be. So the whole goal of redemption is to restore fallen image bearers to again become the bearers of the image of His Son. That's why we read in Romans 8 verse 29 that we, the people of God, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Why? Because we were created in the image of God's Son. And so all of creation, all of creation exists to magnify God's Son, the person in whom the Father reveals Himself. All of creation was very good in his sight when he finished his work. Oh, the Father rested. And he beheld in this magnificent creation, he beheld the reflection of the glory of his only begotten Son. But he saw it especially in man. And so we were created. We were created for the glory of God's Son. We were created to know God's Son. We were created to love God's Son. We were created to serve Him. And so the ultimate outcome of the Father's work, when He created Adam and Eve until they fell, is that they, more than the rest of creation, that they, especially they, that they rendered glory to God's Son, because it was in Him, in Him, that Adam and Eve knew God, knew their Maker, because that's the very purpose of the eternal generation of God's Son, as we will see in Lord's Day 13. God has eternally generated His Son so that in His Son, He could enter into a personal love relationship with that creature that bears the image of His Son. That's why the focus of God's redeeming work is to restore us to what He originally created us to be. And that's why He sent His Son in the fullness of time to accomplish that work of redemption. That word redemption, you know, is a very rich word. The word redemption in the Bible is often connected with slavery, but when we think of it in, ter in, in terms of salvation, redemption means that total package of benefits whereby we not only are delivered from sin and all of its consequences, but that word redemption talks about total restoration. That's what Christ came to do, to save us, to make us whole, to restore us again. And as I've said many times here already, it's not arbitrary that 
in the Trinity, it's the Son who becomes man. It is the Son who comes in the fullness of time. It is the Son who comes to accomplish the work of redemption. Because it is the Son in the Trinity, it's the Son who is the person in whom the Father interacts with man. It's the Son in whom the Father reveals Himself to man. It is in the Son that God brings us into a relationship with Himself. That's why it was the Son who had to come in the fullness of time. Beautifully expressed by Peter in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, listen carefully, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God that He might bring us back to God, that He might restore us. Oh, the whole goal of His redeeming work is to restore us into a love relationship with our Maker, to restore us in a love relationship with the Father who created us. And the outcome, the outcome of that marvelous work of redemption accomplished by the sin, by the Son, is a full deliverance, a full deliverance from the dominion and slavery of sin and the full restoration into the favor of God. That also helps us explain the work of God the Holy Ghost in our sanctification. That's intimately connected to this marvelous work of redemption. And sanctification, what does that mean? Well, those of you that know Dutch knows that that word is a bit more helpful, heilig making, to make one holy. What does that mean? Is the goal of the Holy Spirit is to so work in a redeemed sinner that he again begins to reflect the character of God. That's what holiness means. Holiness is that attribute of God that speaks of His complete otherness. And of course, as created in God's image, we were utterly unique in all of creation. Created by a holy God to be a holy people. So not only has the triune God redeem us through the Son and His accomplished work as that one divinely appointed mediator. But the ultimate goal is that as redeemed sinners, we will again begin to manifest the image of the Son. For we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby He so works in us as believers that we begin to fulfill the purpose for which we were created and were redeemed. And so the goal of sanctification is to again conform us to Christ. The goal of sanctification is to make the redeemed sinner become increasingly Christ-like. And so what that means is that this Spirit, as you know, we've, we've commemorated that a few weeks ago. What did we learn about Him from John 16? 
What did Jesus say about that spirit? He said, that spirit will glorify me. That spirit will take out of me and will show it unto you. And so that spirit, the spirit who sanctifies the redeemed believer, has as his goal the glory of Christ. And you see, and the more we are sanctified, the more we begin to resemble Christ, the more we die to ourselves, the more our flesh gets crucified, and the more we begin to resemble Christ, the better the Holy Spirit likes it. Because that's his goal. That's his work. And so we need to understand something about sanctification. I can be I have to be very brief here because of time restraints. I hope to be able to unpack that in the future a bit more. But what is sanctification? Sanctification, listen carefully, sanctification is not trying to be what we ought to be. Because then we will fail. We come short. The Heidelberg Catechism says later in Lord's Day 44 that even the the holiest of men have but a small beginning of that new obedience. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is becoming what we already are in Christ. So in Christ, we are fully redeemed. In Christ, we are righteous in the sight of God. So what does the Holy Spirit do in his amazing work? He gradually makes us what we already are. So that slowly but surely as he patiently labors with us, as he leads us, as he guides us, that slowly but surely we begin to become what we already are in Christ. Why is that so important? Because if that were not true, then every believer would despair. If sanctification meant that we have to do our utmost and we have to do our our best to be as good a Christian as we can be. What a hopeless and futile endeavor that would be. How many of God's people would despair. But the beauty is, dear believer, the beauty is that when you have believed in Christ, when you have trusted in Him, God views you always in light of that redeeming work of His Son. And He views you as complete in Him. He views you as righteous in Him. We lose sight of it many times, but I can assure you, God never loses sight of His Son and His finished work. And so the Spirit of God, on the basis of that redeeming work of the Son, He works, He dwells in the believer as the Holy Spirit, as a Spirit whose goal is to make us holy, is to make us Christ-like, so that we become what we already are in Christ. How encouraging that is. Do you know what that means? When we fail, and we do, sometimes we fail badly. That doesn't jeopardize my position. It doesn't jeopardize my relationship. It jeopardizes the functioning of that relationship. But it doesn't jeopardize my relationship. That means that tomorrow morning, I can bow my knees I say, Lord, I failed yesterday. I grieve thee by my foolishness, by my sin. But Lord, enable me by thy spirit. Enable me to be what I am. 
Because that's what sanctification is. A marvelous work. And so here, it's set before us how each of the persons, God the Father, who created us in the image of His Son, God the Son, who came in the fullness of time to redeem fallen image bearers and to restore us, to redeem us, so that we again become what God created us to be. Predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And that's, of course, that's why sanctification is such an important component of the whole work of redemption. There are far too many today who are only interested in being saved from sin and hell. And now they're really interested in living a Christ-like life. We will see it also as we continue our exposition of the Beatitudes. Redemption not only consists of being delivered from sin and all of its consequences, but it means restoration. And so the work of the Spirit in sanctifying a redeemed sinner is an inseparable part of the saving work of the triune God. Because we could put it this way, that Christ, God's Son, God's eternal Son, He became like us in the fullness of time so that we could become like Him. He became like us so that we could become like Him. And it is that Spirit who dwells within us, that Spirit who ultimately, in His amazing work, not only restores the image of God's Son in us, but who brings us into fellowship with both the Father and the Son. That brings us to the next question. That brings us to the being of the triune God. Because you see, the way, the way that the persons of the Trinity, the way they function in the work of redemption has everything to do with their being. One of the foundational truths of Scripture is this. It's an important one. Parents, you can explain this to your children again. Listen carefully. God does what He does because He is who He is. God does what He does because He is who He is. So in other words, God's actions are a reflection of who He is. That's why so many of God's deeds are recorded in Scripture. Because through his deeds we know him. Because he does what he does. Because he is who he is. And that's very much true about the Trinity. And so this functioning of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the work of redemption and restoration, is a direct reflection of who they are in their glorious and mysterious being. The question is, why do you speak of fathers and the Holy Ghost? And the answer is because God has revealed Himself in His Word in that way. That's why we cannot be saved apart from Scripture. Because the book of nature does not reveal the Trinity to us. 
we who by the grace of God have the Word of God, when we look at creation through the glasses of Scripture, we can behold the glory of a triune God. But without Scripture, we would not know this. And that's why we need the Word of God. Because this is how God reveals Himself. Now, in the Old Testament, it is kind of obscure. But the very opening verse of the Bible already reveals it to us. In the beginning, God created. That's a grammatically incorrect statement in Hebrew. Because the name God is Elohim. That's a plural term. And created is a singular verb. Those of you who are learning English grammar, you know that your subject always has to agree with your verb. A singular subject requires a singular verb form. A plural subject requires a plural verb form. We have a plural noun, Elohim, and we have a singular verb. There's the first hint to this mystery. Then, of course, at the end of the chapter, where it says, let us make man in our image. There, what we are listening to, we're listening to a dialogue between the Father and the Son who commune in the Spirit and say, let us make man in our image. There are some other references in the Old Testament. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the word is the Son, the Lord is the Father, were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of of his mouth, which is the Spirit, because the word Spirit literally means breath. The Holy Spirit is the breath of the Almighty. I'll explain that in just a moment. That's very significant. There's, now, when we, we shed the light of the New Testament on that passage, we see clearly the three persons of the Trinity, a wonderful summary of God's creative work. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God the Spirit of the Lord God, the Father, is upon me, the Son. And Christ, of course, quotes that in Luke 4 when he speaks in the, in the synagogue in Galilee. But also Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the, the famous Shema of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, plural, is singular, one God. Again, the same mystery. Now, of course, in the New Testament we see with increasing clarity the unveiling of the Trinity. One of the most dramatic moments, of course, is the baptism of Christ. There we literally see the functioning of all three persons. There we see the Father speaking about His Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon the Son. And, of course, then the passage I quoted in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, there Christ, with absolute clarity, identifies all three persons of the Trinity. First John 5, verse 7, we have one of the most significant proof texts in the New Testament, where we read this, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, 
which is the Son and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And so that brings us to what has God revealed of Himself in His Word. What He has revealed is that He is one being, one divine being with a triple personality, three distinct persons that subsist in one divine being. We have our being as human beings, but we have but one personality. But God has a triple personality. Those personalities which are totally unique The Father has unique properties that the Son doesn't have. The Son has unique properties that neither the Father nor the Spirit has. And the Spirit has unique properties. What are those properties? Well, we know that the Father begets the Son. We will deal in more detail in Lord's Day 13 with that. So there is this eternal begetting of the Son. A begetting that never began. So eternally, the Son, as it were, arises out of the very heart of His Father. The Son is begotten of the Father. He is the brightness of His glory, Paul says in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the express image of His person. And so the Son is an exact image of His Father. And so the Father sees Himself perfectly reflected in His Son. And the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Again, very significant property that is true of the Holy Spirit alone. So let me try as simply as I can to explain what I think, and I I say that with hesitation. But congregation, if there's anything that I have learned and what has helped me immensely is to realize that the Trinity is a love relationship. I've said this before. The Trinity is a love relationship, an everlasting love relationship between the Father and the Son who love each other perfectly and completely in the very person of the Spirit. The Spirit who is the bond of love that unites the Father and the Son. The Spirit who is the person in whom the Father fully communicates His love to His Son. And the Spirit is the person in whom the Son fully communicates His love to His Father. That's why He is a divine person. Because that communication is complete. And so... In the Spirit, the Father loves His Son completely. And in the Spirit, the Son loves the Father completely. That's why we read only of the Spirit that He proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That's why He's called the breath of the Almighty. That's what the name Spirit means. And so again, the best way for me to explain it is when we talk about an intimate love relationship between two human beings. And so what does a husband do to his wife? He communicates with her. He communicates his love verbally to her. And the wife communicates her love verbally to her husband. So we could say that 
His communication proceeds from him to her and from her to him. And so this is the function of the Holy Spirit within that glorious trinity. And so what this teaches us about God's triune being, listen carefully, God is a covenantal being. That's it. The Trinity is a covenantal relationship. There is a covenantal union between the Father and the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit. And because God is a covenantal being, that's why He created us as covenantal creatures in His image. And that's why God's goal in redemption, in creation and redemption, is to bring us into a covenantal relationship with himself. Because that reflects his character. And that's why the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, as the one who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, his his redeeming work, his sanctifying work, reflects his role within the Trinity. Let me explain that. So, he is the Spirit of the Father, and he is also called the Spirit of the Son. And that makes sense. He proceeds from both. That's why I read also John 15, verse 26. If you read that verse carefully, clearly Christ indicates that that Spirit proceeds from him and proceeds from his Father. So, how does he work? How does that Spirit of God work savingly? As the Spirit of the Father, he leads us to the Son in order to be reconciled with the Father. But as the Spirit of the Son, He then leads us to the Father to enjoy fellowship and communion with the God to whom we are now reconciled. So let me repeat that. As the Spirit of the Father, He leads us to the Son. And as the Spirit of the Son, He leads us to the Father because He proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so again, congregation, I've made a feeble attempt to try to explain in some measure why God has revealed himself this way. Because you see, God could not be a God of love if he were not a triune being. Because he was a God of love before he ever created anything. He was a God of love within himself. His very triune being is defined by love. And you know that in order to love, there has to be an object that you love. And so in that divine triune being, the Son is the object of His Father's love. And the Father is the object of the Son's love. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 27, No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father Save the Son. That's why we read in the chapter several times where Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That mysterious relationship, that mysterious love relationship. That's why God did not have to create to find fulfillment for himself. 
God in his triune being, in that love relationship, in that covenantal union between the Father and the Son, in the Spirit, is perfectly fulfilled and satisfied in himself. And yet, because the Father loves his Son, something that is profoundly repeated throughout the Gospel of John, God purposed eternally to create a creation for the glory of his Son, to create a creature in the image of his Son, to bring glory to his Son. And that would be the ultimate outcome of that amazing work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because when you think of it, in our original creation, we see the Trinity created as the Son of the Father, bearing the image of the Son and the temple of the Holy Spirit. There you have all three. And that would be the ultimate outcome of redemption. When it's all said and done, God's redeemed people that will occupy this new earth, God's redeemed people will forever be the sons and daughters of the Father, will forever bear the image of God's Son, and will forever be indwelt by the Spirit. Such is the work of this glorious triune God. And so, of course, we have a remarkable benediction, do we not? I just pronounced it this morning. A remarkable Trinitarian benediction that I pronounced upon you. And I said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And again, that's a significant statement. I need to wrap this up now. But there you see how experientially we become acquainted with each person of the Trinity. We become acquainted, first of all, with the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that interaction with the Savior, we then experience the love of God. And through the Holy Spirit, we then enjoy fellowship and communion with this wonderful God. And so the question for you and me is, are we in any way acquainted with this glorious triune God? Do we have any knowledge of God the Son and through Him of God the Father and experience in our soul the amazing work of God the Holy Spirit? Is there evidence in your and my life that that Spirit dwells within us the Spirit of the Father and the Son, that that Spirit is sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of God's Son. Because the more we reflect the image of God's Son, the more the Father will be glorified. And that's why I think Sam Rutherford once said, I don't know who I would love the most. I love them all. I need them all. I need Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as believers, we become acquainted with all three persons of, this, of the Trinity. And they all become precious to us.
That's why Jesus said in John 8, verse 42, he said it to the Pharisees. He said, if God were your father, they were claiming that God was their father. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. That's the evidence. And so that means positively for us. If by the grace of God, we love God's son, if we love him, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can say that before God, that you love his son, that means that God is your father, that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And we know the Father and the Son through the Spirit who proceeds from both. So let me conclude with a remarkable passage. Turn there with me. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. There we read this. Remarkable words. Thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Or we would say, let not the learned man glory in his intelligence, in his learning. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious triune God, how magnificent thou art. How amazing is the revelation of thy triune being in thy word. Lord, our understanding of who thou art is so primitive, and yet what thou hast revealed of thyself is so glorious indeed. Lord, we pray, therefore, that by thy grace we might know thee experientially, that we might know experientially the wonder of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that through him we might experience the love of the Father and the communion of the Holy Ghost. And so bless us. Let thy precious word abide in us. And may it be our intense desire to know thee and to know more of thee. For thou hast promised that thou wilt reveal the secret of thy being to those that fear thee. And Lord, if we have no knowledge of thee at all, oh, that we would be awakened tonight. For unless we know thee savingly, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we shall perish. And therefore we might seek thee, yet while thou art to be found. Forgive our sins of this day and hour. Go with us in this coming week. Bless us in our daily calling. Keep us safely if we should travel and gather with us this coming Lord's Day. 
We ask it in Jesus' name alone. Amen.